At this time, we're going to welcome Conrad, who's going to share the word with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Faith. Appreciate that. Well, I am definitely not used to being on this side of the microphone. As most of you know, I'm one of the sound people back here. Um, I've been doing sound and stuff for probably my whole life. I thought about it the other day. I've been doing sound for 50 years. How does that happen? I started with audiovisual stuff back when I was in high school. Actually, before that. How many people are old enough to remember film strip projectors? The kind you play the record and you hear, bonk, and then you turn the thing. I started doing that when I was like fourth or fifth grade. I was the kid who went, oh, let me try that, you know. And then from there was the 16 millimeter film reel projectors. And then once I got into high school, I was in all the AV stuff. And uh, I learned a lot from it. How many people uh, remember that kid going, that pushing that, the projector down the hall, right? The AV nerd, right? I was a nerd before they used the word. <laughs> Let me give you an example of nerd credits. I was the vice president of the closed circuit TV club. <laughs> that is worse than being in the chess club, folks. Let me tell you, that's... But anyway, right out of high school, I stayed with, I stayed with audiovisual, uh, and by 19 years old, I was working for sound companies. And uh, it didn't take long before I realized the only way you can make a living doing that is out on the road. And I did not want to live out on the road. That whole concert tour thing was exciting for the first three months, and then it was not. And I realized that the lifestyle and everything they went with, it just wasn't for me. So I got out of that, and... In 1984, I decided, well, let me see if I could take some of that audiovisual stuff and go out to Los Angeles and see if there's anything, film, television, any of that stuff that could work. Well, it was actually God's plan because a month after I landed out there, I got saved. And the church I got saved in was a big church. And guess what they needed at the big church? Sound guys. Right. So I ended up, after a year, I was doing some part-time things with them, and after two years, I was on full-time staff. This church, was, it wasn't a mega church like a lot of people would think of today. It was early. It was in the 80s. So it was a good-sized church, but um, we had four full-time sound people, two full-time video people, and uh, it was a great opportunity. And people would ask me, well, you work at a church. What do you do during the week? Right? And it's like, oh, it's simple. I work overtime. <laughs> And uh, actually, mostly what I did was I would be in this room about 12 by 12 with tape machines all around me. And I would prepare all those cassette tapes that everybody would listen to because in those days everyone got cassette tapes. And you'd have to make this big bin loop thing and all that. Anybody wants to know how cassette tapes were mass produced back in the 80s? Come see me afterwards. I'll give you a history lesson. They don't do any of that stuff anymore. It's all digital, all CD, all online. But I had to do that. And part of what you'd have to do when you would master these tapes is put the introduction on it. And I would do the voiceover. You know, this is recording number 3,225, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end, I would say, pastor speaks on the subject, and I'd have to give the sermon title. Well, if I didn't have the sermon title, I couldn't master the cassettes. So what do you do? And uh, what would happen is after I was done with whatever I had to do each Sunday or Wednesday, pastor was usually in the car on his way home because I had to pack up and turn things off and do all that stuff. So getting the sermon title was not always easy. Well, eventually, somehow, someway, the pastor ended up getting a car phone. Somebody gave him a car that had a car phone in it, and they gave me the numbers. I said, call him. Call him on his car phone, and that'll be, that'll be, that'll be fine. 
So one Sunday I called him up. And I said, hey, Pastor, it's Conrad checking on the, on the sermon title. And he says, well, um, what do you think it should be? Uh-huh. Uh, how about, and I just right off the top of my head offered something. He goes, huh. Yeah, that'll work. He goes, yeah, go with that. Go with that. That'll be fine. That's okay. Which service do you want? You told me which one. Okay, fine. Marked it down. I'm thinking, huh, cool. Hang up the phone. The pastor asked me my opinion. <laughs> wow, that's kind of cool. And I hung up the phone. I go walking through the door. And I go, oh, wait a minute. He was checking to see if I was paying attention. <laughs> you know, I never once asked him what the original sermon title was supposed to be because there isn't a pastor on the planet that gets to this point right here and doesn't have a sermon title. So here's mine. You ready for it? Cleanliness is next to godliness. And other misconceptions about the Bible. Okay, there's, there's a list of things that I made. Some of them are pretty lighthearted. Some of them get a little heavy. And once I can get past the nerves, I think I can get into this. Like I said, I'm used to being on that side of the microphone. So the quote, let's start with that one. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Where did that come from? Well, as we all know, it's not in the Bible. Okay. So the original quote came from Sir Francis Bacon, who was an English philosopher of the 1600s. And his quote goes more like this. Cleanliness of body was never deemed to proceed from a due reverence to God. I guess you have to be in the 1600s for that sentence to make as much sense. But how did it get into church? Everyone knows the name John Wesley, right? I don't know how many of you know that John Wesley's sermons are all scripted and all cataloged. And you can read every single one of them even today. And he had one called On Dress. It was uh, sermon number 88, as a matter of fact. And um, in that, he was talking about how you want to be presentable before God, but it's not really what determines your true reverence to God. But he made this comment in the sermon. He said, because we all know cleanliness uh, is... Oh, wait a minute. How'd that go again? This is sort of a sermon title. I didn't get it right. Yeah, cleanliness is next to godliness. And he just said that flippantly. Just said it. Well, as a result of that, everyone thought, oh, well, then it must be from the Word of God, right? It must be, that must be Bible. If John Wesley's saying it, it's got to be Bible, right? And it, it just hung on there. Everyone, you know, everyone thought that that was Bible. How many have noticed when Pastor Jason comes up and he gives a, he started to do his sermons, he prays a prayer that goes something like this. Lord, I pray that whatever comes out of me falls by the wayside, but what comes through the Holy Spirit through me, gets to the hearts and minds of people. Okay? That's because pastor understands something that a lot of people don't understand, is that when a, when a person who stands at this location says things, and people are new to being believers or visitors and not believers, they think, oh, if the pastor's saying it, it's got, it's, it's got to be God, right? Well, it can be, but it might also just be an opinion, a little conjecture, an observation, so we have to be careful, you know, that, that, we, um, that we know where it's coming from. And pastor understands that. And I, I don't know if you appreciate how rare that is to have a pastor who understands that it's not about him. It's about him. Okay? So, and there's nothing wrong with being presentable, you know, and, and dressing properly. But that's really not the, the purpose of it. So um, let me move to the next one here. Like I said, I just got to get through the nerves a little bit and then I'll be Okay. Here's another line. God helps those who help themselves. We've all heard it, right? Not in the Bible. I think most of us know that. So do you know where it came from? Anybody? Rich? No? Anybody? My mother. Your mother. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, that was for cleaning your room, right? <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. Exactly. He wrote a book called Poor Richard's Almanac. And because it says, uh, God helps those who help themselves, a lot of people think, well, that's in the Bible. They did a poll. Eight out of ten Americans surveyed thought that that was in the Bible. And, and it's not. Okay? Years ago, back in the 80s at that first church I was telling you about, went to a marriage seminar. And it was an older couple, really nice folks, very soft-spoken. Uh, one of my favorite seminar kind of experiences that I've had over the years. And it was like a Thursday night, Friday night, sat, all day Saturday marriage seminar. And Bill, who was the, uh, the husband, was teaching on Saturday morning. And it was one of those things where everyone's sort of paying attention. They've had enough coffee to semi-stay awake. But you've been in those situations probably. And uh, as he's talking, he says, and clearly that's in the Bible, right? And you get the usual, hmm, yeah, a lot of people, yeah, yeah. He goes, no, it's not. Have you ever been driving down the road and hit a bump in the road and you didn't know it was there? You go, whoa, 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 what was that? Well, the whole room had a spiritual road bump right there. And he goes, listen. He says, it's very easy for people to come and visit your church or maybe even in a pastor, a visiting pastor or whatever. And they're going to make statements about what's in the Word of God. And it may or may not be. He says, you really have to go and check for yourself. You really do. And I'll guarantee you uh, that Pastor Jason wants you to check every single thing he says. I'll guarantee it. It's not something that's, well, what are you checking me for? He wants you to check. Okay? And I'm encouraging each and every one of us to check for yourself because people will come forward and they'll say, oh, yeah, that's clearly what the Bible says. Um, And I'll get into some of the other details later. But let's get some of the lighthearted ones. We've all heard this one. Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Well, the Bible in the, New, in the Old Testament says that he was swallowed by a great fish. I'll read it for you. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, it says in the original Hebrew, the Hebrew word is D-A-G, dag or dag or whatever. I don't speak Hebrew, so I really don't know the right pronunciation. And that means fish, so great fish. And uh, the word whale in Hebrew is more like something that sounds like Leviathan, which is where we probably get the name Leviathan. And Leviathan is, uh, was, was considered a whale in those days. So what throws a lot of people is when you get to the King James Version in, uh, in Matthew 12:40, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees saying this, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, the Greek word there is ketos. I think it's K-E-T-O-U-S. And in the time of the translation of the King James Bible, they viewed whales as being sea monsters. The word ketos means sea monster. So it was translated whale. So now everyone just says the belly of the whale. Well, does it matter? Not really, but I think you'll see what I'm getting at a little bit later on but the key to this whole thing is it says that God prepared the great fish so whether it was a whale that was modified or a fish that was modified it was something where a human could be inside the belly for three days and not suffocate or get digested so obviously uh, he survived that here's another one Delilah cut off Samson's hair nope Delilah's servant not Delilah cut off his hair 
goes like this, Judges 16, 19. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for some, someone to come and shave his seven braids, and as, did, as he did so, they subdued him, and he lost his strength. You could say that Sam, Samson had some serious Old Testament dreadlocks, right? I can just imagine that, because he never cut his hair. How long would a man's hair get? Well, I remember when I was 21 years old, it was down to here. <laughs> like I said, I used to do concert tours, so that it worked in those days. But it wasn't for me now, you know. First of all, you have to actually have some hair. Here's another one. Noah bought one pair of each animal onto the ark. Genesis chapter 7, or one pair, so it's two of each, right? Genesis 7. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, one pair of every kind of unclean animal, I guess they don't rate, and um, also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. I went through my whole life thinking, two by two, right? Remember Bill Cosby's Noah, right? Right? I don't know if anybody remembers that old comedy routine he used to do. But everyone thinks so, two by two. There is a point to all this. Is that we, we tend to think that because we, we know these things, we stay with them. Now this one's a little bit different. Song of Solomon. Remember when I first got saved and I was starting to read the Bible? Song of Solomon was an interesting one to come across because it's so poetic and you don't really know. You can't make heads or tails of it. And everybody that I knew was saying, well, the Song of Solomon is about Solomon and one of his many wives. And their passions for one another graphically represented in the Bible so that God would say to us, it's okay for intimacy in that way. That's, that's okay with him. And I was like, okay, that was fine. But 20 years ago, I went to a church in New Jersey, and the pastor there was something of an Old Testament scholar. And he, he liked the older, the older Testament stuff better, and he was an expert on that. And he taught the Song of Solomon for eight consecutive Sundays. Who's ever heard of eight consecutive Sundays for the Song of Solomon? But after that, I came to realize what the Song of Solomon was actually all about, and more importantly, why it's in the Bible. And uh, I think you might find this as interesting as I did. So I'm going to give you a very brief synopsis of his eight-week study. No, I'm not going to take eight weeks to do it. It goes something like this. We know from 1 Kings chapter 11, I believe it is, that Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and an endless supply of vitamins. <laughs> I, I added the vitamins part. That's not in the Bible. So. Considering the subject matter, I thought I'd clear that up. And the way the story goes, well, actually, what, before that, you have to look at the Song of Solomon as something of an operetta. Operators aren't like operas. They're very often with spoken words as well as singing words. But Solomon wrote this because he had a message he wanted to convey to people. And I think you're going you're gonna to share that after I explain it to you. So here's King Solomon. He's out and about in one of his smaller communities. And you notice there's this rather attractive young lady over there. And he's the king. He gets what he wants. So he was probably out looking for wife number 431, I think it was. I think that's what the Bible says, wife number 431. And, uh, and he says to his cohorts, hey, see your old, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that one, yeah. Because they knew by then what, what, 
what he would do and what his tastes were and what kind of ladies he was attracted to. So he says, hey, I want her for my next wife. Oh, great. So they go and they, they go to her. You, the king wants you to be the next queen. Well, you don't get to say no. When the king says you're going to be a queen, you don't get to say no. There was only one problem. This young lady was madly and passionately in love with a shepherd boy from her town. Really, really in love with this kid. But you don't say no. So they escort her over to the palace, get her all prepared. All the assistants, all the, you know, the, the, whatever the staff is of ladies that help get the ladies prepared for the king. And the king comes in ready to consummate the marriage. And in those days, they didn't stand there and say, do you take lovely to beloved, you know, husband. They would just go at the consummating of the marriage, and that would be the marriage. Well, she knew that the second she consummated that marriage, she could never be with the shepherd boy. Because now she was going to be Solomon's wife. She was going to be the queen. All the all came with it. But it didn't matter. She was not going to be able to be with the boy that she loved. And what does she do? Faints. So she's passed out on the bed. And Solomon says, oh, that's, uh, that's a little out of the ordinary. Okay, well, you know, she's probably tired from the trip. Get her some food. Get her some rest. I'll be back. So in the meantime, the shepherd boy shows up. He's at the palace. Now, put this in context. What would you do? If, if you were in that situation and you knew that the palace was off limits to the average person, this kid didn't care. He went up, he's rattling the cage. She's in there. Where is she? Where is she? Where is she? In the meantime, she's passed out. And you can't really tell by the storyline whether she can actually hear him out there, whatever, but they, there's a connection between them. And they begin to have their interaction of, oh, I want to be with you. And that's where all those graphic details of, I see you this way. I want to be this way with you. I want to do that with you. And Solomon put that in there to really draw, drive the point home of what it was that these kids had for one another. So Solomon would come back every so often. And he'd say, okay, we're ready to go now. She'd faint again. He goes, okay, well, you know, I understand that. So after about whatever number of times it says... He comes walking up, and she's passed out on the bed, and he hears a ruckus out there, and I'm going to enter a little bit of editorial license here. And he says to his but one of his guys, hey, what's that ruckus I hear out there? That's the boyfriend. The boyfriend? Her boyfriend? Yeah. He came to the palace, he's rattling. And then it clicks. Wove. Twoo wove. <laughs> Only three people saw that movie. It's a movie reference. Um, Solomon realized at that point that these two were so deeply in love with one another that even the authority of a king couldn't get in the way of it. And he wanted everybody to know what that love was and what it meant to everybody. When you have that level of love, nothing else matters. The kid didn't care if he was put in a dungeon. She was going to have all the trimmings of a queen. She didn't care. Okay, So what does Solomon do? He releases her. He sends her back to her hometown. He sends her back with all the riches of a queen and an entourage and servants and all that she would have if she was queen so she could be with the shepherd boy. Because he wanted us to know that that kind of love, that's the kind of love God has for us. It's the kind of love he has for you. Because there's somebody here that doesn't know that. Somebody watching doesn't know that. That is the kind of, and nothing else matters. 
And if you doubt that observation, I'm going to read to you a scripture verse that you've probably heard a million times and maybe never heard this way. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's finish it together. So that those who believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So loved the world. Bet you never heard that word so before. Usually we hear things and we think, so God loved the world, gave us a son. God loved the world, so he gave us a son. But no, God so loved. Changes things a little bit, doesn't it? All right, let me go on to the next one. Here's some things that you may not have known are actually in the Bible. Back to the more lighthearted stuff. How many people were aware that in Israel, after Saul was slain, that there was another king between him and David in Israel? It's true. It was just Israel. It was not uh, Judea. David took over immediately in Judea. It was Saul's oldest son, and he was appointed by Abner, who was Saul's uncle and the commander of the army, and Ish Boshep, I think his name was. And he reigned for about two years. He was 40 years old, and David basically left him alone. They did, there was no report as to whether he was a good king or a bad king. He was only in charge for about two years. My guess is that David probably knew him, didn't have a problem with him, let him do it for a while, and then when things calmed down, he probably gracefully stepped down and said, okay, David, you can take care of this too. But that's just a little, little detail that some people missed. Here's one of my favorite ones. How many people were aware that when in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came for Jesus, everybody was slain in the spirit? In, in John, it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay? So this verifies something that a lot of people miss. When Jesus says, I give my life freely, nobody takes it. All you have to do is just say, I am he, and they all just fell to the ground. He could have very easily just, I'm out of here. And he didn't. He stood there and he waited. He goes, okay, guys, I'm ready. And that really helped to verify the point. I don't know how many people didn't know that was in there, but how many people were aware that on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus was not the only one that raised from the dead? Matthew 27. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went to the holy city and appeared to many people. Here's my question on that. When did they raise from the dead? Was it Friday when Jesus was crucified and the curtain was torn, or was it Sunday morning? Because I would really hate to think this. Like, okay, we're alive now, but we can't leave until Sunday morning and all day Saturday. It's like, we're in, we're in the tombs here. It's like, you know. But that's true. How many people did not know that all those people... Yeah, so maybe maybe more people knew than I thought. But it's amazing how many people don't know that. Let's see here. Where was this other one? Oh, yeah. Exodus 4.24. 
at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. A lot of people don't know that one's in there. That's one of those road bumps in the Bible. It was, and then it says, but Sephora, who was his wife, took a flint knife and cut off the foreskin of uh, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, which means something uh, spiritual about, you know, they're, they're spiritually connected as, as husband and wife. And she said, so let the Lord, so, uh, so when she did that, the Lord let him alone. That's something that you hear sometimes in sermons about uh, before you go off and do what you think is God's ministry, take care of your matters at home first. You know, settle, make sure your house is in order before you go out and you do those things you think are for the Lord. So back to the things that are not in the Bible. When Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he was thrown from his horse. And God shined the light on him. No horse. I know this is minor, but there's a reason for it. So where does that come from? Well, I looked into it and I saw, I found about 10 or 11 paintings of that time period, medieval times and, and, and Victorian times. All, throughout the years, artists have been putting uh, really nice paintings out about that. And out of the 11 I found, 10 of them had him being thrown from a horse and only one had him just on the ground without a horse around him. And the reason I bring that one up is, isn't that what we do? We watch a movie, TV show, or hear lyrics of a song, we think, oh, that's, that's what it was. I saw that movie. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the truth. And we don't go and check for ourselves where the truth really lies. And let me find one more thing here. Well, to, to verify that you know, some people will say, oh, no, he, he, was, he was on a horse. It's a different translation that said it. It says, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard, they heard the voice but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. If there had been a horse, you think they'd just put him back on the horse because it doesn't say the horse got blind. So that's just the verification. Oh, here's another little Paul thing. Saul changed his name to Paul upon his conversion. Actually, that's not true. Saul and Paul are the same name spoken in two different languages. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul would be the Greek name. And in Acts chapter 11, um, he, gets, he gets converted in uh, Acts chapter 9. He's not mentioned in Acts chapter 10. In Acts 11 and 12, he's still referred to as Saul. In Acts chapter 13... Luke starts saying this, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Saul, also known as Paul. And I think he did that to clarify that from that point forward in the book, Paul was ministering around outside of Israel, and he would have been known as Paul. And, he didn't, and Luke didn't want to confuse anybody with the storyline. So that's why he would say, okay, we're going to refer to him by his Greek name now instead of his, uh, his Hebrew name. It's kind of like Ellis Island back 100 years ago. Immigrants from Europe would go over and they would Americanize their names. And they had a list of names from the different countries and what they meant in English. So if you were from France and you were coming to, to New York and you'd come in and they'd say, okay, your name is Guillaume, your name in America is William. Okay, and they would change your name to William and you would go by the American name. If you were Italian and your name is Gaetano, they would look it up, okay, in the United States your name will be Thomas because that's what Gaetano is in English. If you're in Israel, 
And your name is Yeshua. In English, it's Jesus. Yeshua is not a different name for Jesus. It's just the Hebrew version of that name. All right? So, unfortunately, there are a few cult groups that when the people join the cult, they give them a new name and they use the Paul conversion thing as a justification for that. It's a sad thing. Money is the root of all evil, so when everybody knows, and we all know the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but you've got to give a little grace on this one. A lot of the liturgical churches, that being Episcopal, Roman Catholic, Anglican, they draw most of their text from the Latin translation. And the Latin translation goes like this. I'm going to speak Latin for a second here. Redix malum est cupitatus. And it means greed is the root of evil. That's the direct translation of it. So you can kind of understand why, if they're getting it from Latin, and it's not as clear, because they use the word greed instead of love of money, as to why it is that there's a little confusion there. So you give people a little bit of grace, and you don't really have to tease people when they say, oh, uh, money is the root of all evil. Oh, where did you hear that? Oh, it's in the Bible. No, no, you're not quoting the Bible. You're quoting Pink Floyd. <laughs> Who was misquoting the Bible? You know. Right. Oh, and also money gets a bad rap because of Luke 22. Judas was the keeper of the money of the disciples. He had stolen some of the money for his own use. Then he betrayed Jesus, his friend and teacher, for money. So money gets a bad rap, unfortunately. All right. Here's some little lighthearted ones. Did Mary ride a donkey on the way to Bethlehem? The point is, it doesn't say. You'd like to think so. I know every lady who's ever had children knows what it's like to be carrying it nine months. And if somebody says, hey, we're going to take a trip down to St. Petersburg, but we're going to have to walk. Yeah, I hear all the ladies with children. But you know something? When you really stop and think about it, the people in that time period were a whole lot tougher than we are. They didn't have cars. They walked everywhere. So it's possible. It's possible that they walked You would like to think that she had some sort of thing like a mule or a cart or something like that. But it it actually doesn't say, and that's, again, the point. Three kings went to Bethlehem and saw Jesus in the stable. We, three kings. They went to, uh, in Matthew 2, it says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. It doesn't say how many. It just says that Magi came. That could be anywhere from 2, 18, we just don't know. The Bible doesn't say so they went to Herod and they asked, and he told them, well, you know, the, the experts say it was Bethlehem. So they went there, and of course, we, hear, you know, we know that he had every child executed under the age of two, which gives some indication that they weren't there at Christmas, that Jesus was probably closer to a year old at this point. And verse 11 says this, on coming to the house, not the stable, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Three three gifts, three kings. It works. And that's fine if you want to say maybe there were three kings. But we draw these things as truths instead of just lighthearted elements to a story that we hear all the time. And there needs to be a separation between what we have for the lighthearted stories and what's really in scripture because we mix the two up a lot. 
So these gifts were interpreted, you know, that way. And let me see here. I don't need to finish that. How many people here, I'm going to ask for a show of hands on this one, were raised being taught that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, right? You know, the Bible says that she was not, right? That's the myth. Where did it come from? Pope Gregory the Great from the 6th century by edict. And at the time, there was this thing called the infallibility of the Pope. So if the Pope said it, you had to go with it. He had equated that uh, the woman in Luke 7, whose tears washed Jesus' feet and then she dried it with her hair, was the same woman as Mary Magdalene. Uh, it, but it wasn't, as we know. And it, nowhere in the Bible does it say that that was, that that was in the Bible. But because this Pope Gregory the Great said so, and I don't want to demean the guy. I'm sure he was a good man. Um, as a matter of fact, you think about it. Back in those days, you had Alexander the Great, Pope Gregory the Great. Can you imagine doing that today? I am Conrad the Great. No, you're Tony the Tiger is what you are. Great. You know. But in those days, that's what was used. So just, you've all heard those jokes, right? A guy dies, goes up to heaven, pearly gates. St. Peter meets him, shows him around, enter joke of the week. Some of those are funny. Most of them, not so much. Well, in that setting, imagine when Pope Gregory the Great dies and he's on his way to heaven. And he sees the pearly gates. And there's somebody there waiting for him. And it's not Peter. It's Mary. What were you thinking? (laughs) Prostitute? Really? Well, I would imagine at that point, Gregory didn't feel all that great. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It'll blow over. Nobody nobody will remember. It'll blow over. Really? Trust, Trust me. Nobody will remember. 1969, the Roman Catholic Church officially rescinded the, the, the notion that Mary was the same woman and that she, and they said she's not a prostitute. 1,500 years of this woman's name being besmirched by the church. Does anybody want to argue that gossip is harmless? 1,500 years. And even today, after they've changed it, people still think, oh, yeah, Mary, she was a prostitute. Yeah, she was a prostitute. Of course, that doesn't help with pop culture, the things we were talking about before. You see a movie or something like that, hear a lyric. Remember that old musical, Jesus Christ Superstar? I don't know how to love her. The truth of the matter is, is that Mary Magdalene was probably an older woman. Probably in her 50s. And the reason why I say that is this. In Luke chapter 8, Um, it says here, after this, Jesus traveled from town to town, village to village. Oh, wait a minute, let me go back one step. When, G- when Jesus was asked to preach in Nazareth, uh, Nazareth and he uh, read from Isaiah. Sorry, I lost my place there. Oh, yeah. He was, he was invited to, to speak in the, in the synagogue. And in those days, as legalistic as the Pharisees were and the leaders of the synagogues were, if you were a sinner, 
not only could you not speak at the synagogue, you, in some cases you weren't even allowed in. You had to stay in the outer courts. If Jesus had been traveling with women his age, with the disciples, if, if Mary and, and the other women that were with them were, um, were traveling with them, they would have been viewed as sinners and there was no way that they would have let Jesus preach in the gospel at that, in, the, in the synagogue at that point. Let me point out, this is the other part I was getting to. In Luke 8, it says this. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's, uh, Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. I don't know if people realize that Jesus and his 12 disciples were financed by a handful of wealthy women, one of which was Mary Magdalene. So Mary was probably an older woman who was very well off. I know she's very often depicted as a uh, downtrodden, troubled person. Just because someone has seven demons doesn't mean that they're groveling in the gutter. Just look at Government, corporate America. These are some pretty slick-looking people. And I'm not going to identify which ones do and which ones don't, but I really don't think that all of them are operating in the spirit of the Lord. So Mary, the, the, the depictation that we have of Mary is, again, very cultural. Let me move on to the next one here. Where am I with time? Ooh. Here's another one. Did you know that there's no place in the New Testament where it says that Jesus' feet were nailed to the cross? As a matter of fact, the accounts of the crucifixion itself in the four gospels doesn't say anything about they nailed them to the cross. We get that from a couple different places. In the New Testament, it's when Thomas comes to him and says, I've got to see the nail prints in the hand. That's the only place where they mention nails. At all. It doesn't say anything about the feet in that case. So where do we get that from? Well, there's a couple of of places. One is what we were saying before about artist renditions. And in the Catholic tradition, they have what's called the crucifix. And I think some people are familiar with that. It's Jesus still on the cross. And that depicts Jesus as being nailed and his legs crossed and one nail through the feet. But where do you get that in Scripture? Psalm 22, verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. And if, if you're a new believer and you've just recently started reading the Bible, even if you've been doing it for a while, I'm going to give you a little bit of an assignment. Look at the four Gospels. Go to the section where the uh, crucifixion is reported. Read all four of them and then go back and read Psalm 22. And you're going to go, oh, that was predicted in detail thousands of years before 1500, whatever it was. Let me see where I am here. Oh, yeah, here's another one about that. There are many, many people who believe that Jesus and his disciples knew what the prophecies were about the coming Messiah. And that they manipulated circumstances to make it look like Jesus was the Messiah because they could do this and say, well, that's what the words do. This. That's what the words said. 
Matthew 27:35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that that may be fulfilled, which was spoken of the prophet, again, Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. I don't think that the Roman soldiers would have been participants in a hoax. If the disciples were trying to manipulate, why would the Roman soldiers participate in that hoax? So that's a logic explanation about how justifiable this 22nd Psalm really is about the prophecy of the uh, crucifixion and also who, um, who Jesus really was. Another place where that's depicted, I don't know how many people know this story, but uh, Catholic tradition, I keep referring to it because I was raised Catholic, so I know a lot about it. And um, there was a, a nun, a mystic, by the name of Anne Catherine Emmerich, who lived in uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. And she claimed that she had had a vision of Mary, the mother of Jesus, after the death and resurrection, and that she lived in Ephesus, and that in her backyard she set these stations up, and they replicated them, and they're in just about every Catholic church you can find around today. Um, which I guess brings us to an interesting question because also like the passion of the Christ uh, very influenced the movie was very influenced by Catholic tradition as well and they have one scene in there where Jesus is on his way to the cross and the lady gives him a cloth and he puts puts it on his face wiped the blood off and his face is left imprinted that's called Veronica's Veil for people who, who are into that the only point I want to make about that is we shouldn't need relics to believe. Oh, we have the crown, the original crown of thorns. I don't need it. I don't need to see that crown of thorns to know that it, they, it was on Jesus' head. The word of God says it was there. And I take that, I take that uh, seriously. So there's a lot of conjecture about the crucifixion and, and, and all that went with it. So, which brings me to a section I call Bible Conjecture. The definition of conjecture, an opinion or conclusion formed on the basis of incomplete information. Some could say jumping to conclusions. Bible conjecture is when somebody takes something in scripture, it seems sensible, and they draw a conclusion and say, oh, it must be this. And we all do that, and conjecture can be okay just as long as you know it's conjecture. Not scripturally accurate. There's a case in point. This is something that I've heard a number of times from a number of pastors over the years. On the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, 500 people witnessed it. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 people in the upper room. So what happened to the 380 people? 380 people must not have paid heed to the call that Jesus had to say, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, but only 120 people there, so the poor 380, they missed out. This is often partnered with the parable of the sower of the seed where he talks about some falling away. Well, I kind of took issue with the 380 part because that was pretty loose conjecture. My thinking at the time was maybe Jesus said don't leave Jerusalem, he didn't say don't leave the upper room. So maybe some of those people were from Jerusalem and they stayed in their homes and only the people from out of town were staying in the upper room. So I decided to dig into it a little bit. Started with the ascension. 
Acts 1, 4 through 11 talks about the ascension, but nowhere in that does it say how many people were there. So where do you get that from? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, and for those who are familiar with 1 Corinthians, verse 15 is a chapter where Paul justifies our whole faith based on Jesus' resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no purpose to be here. If he didn't die and rise from the dead, then we're just another belief system like all the others. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Somehow, some way, that, that line got assigned to the ascension. And it says more than 500. It doesn't say actually 500. We have this tendency, don't we, of equating quality with quantity. In other words, the biggest event has to be where the most people were showing up, right? So the natural deductive reasoning and conjecture is, oh, okay, well, when, when was that 500? Well, it must have been the day that Jesus, that's the big event. That was the biggest event after the resurrection was the ascension, right? So it had to be where the 500 people were. My own personal experience, the most significant spiritual event of my life happened in this room probably three years ago on a Monday night with 20 people in a room. I've shared it with some people. I'm not sure I should share it in detail now. Lord will tell me I'll go back to it. Uh, so, okay, let me, let me, the 500, okay, that doesn't work. Let me go to Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered in one place. thought it was 120 in the upper room. Wait a minute. It doesn't say how many. It doesn't even say where. But yet, a year ago, if somebody had said to me, describe for me the day of Pentecost, I said, well, 120 people were in the upper room, and the Spirit came down, and all that went with it. But it doesn't actually say that. So how do you build something like that? Well, we have a tendency also of reading Scripture in narrative storyline form. And Acts chapter 1 is a perfect example of how it's more of a bullet point, fact, 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 rather than telling a story. And we have a tendency to read it as a storyline and put it together as a singular entity. After the, uh, after the ascension, the apostles returned from Jerusalem to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were, it was the remaining 11, and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Uh, historians say that only two of his four brothers were there. So there was maybe about 12, 14, 18 people, maybe at the most. There is this mindset that after the Last Supper, that all the apostles went back to that same room and stayed there, and that was their base of operation. But the Bible doesn't say that. It gets a little detailed, so... Bear with me as I try to be a Greek scholar. The NIV uses a Greek word, hyperroot or hyperrune. And that's, in Greek, that's, that's a word that represents a, 
uh, a sleeping quarters, like up on the third floor, like an apartment. The first place that we come across, I'll find that scripture verse. Computers are great, but in Luke 22, where Jesus instructs them, um, keep in mind that Luke both wrote both the book of Acts and his gospel. So which words he chooses to use are important. Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, "Teacher, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? And it's the word uh, K-A-T-A-L-Y-M-A. Um, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Then he will show you a large furnished upper room and a gion, which it's, my, forgive my Greek pronunciations. Uh, and there you will make it, the, the supper ready. So you've got three Greek words. Uh, the katamaya, whatever it is, means a guest room, which is the guest quarters. The other one, the ana and agion, means a large furnace room, uh, likely a place to hold, hold gatherings or meals, and it's above ground on the second floor. And it's more like a loft or a balcony. So it wouldn't have been sleeping quarters. Then in verse 15, it says that, uh, oh, wait a minute. Again, I apologize. This is the first time I've ever done this. So, In verse 15, it talks about how Peter stood up amongst the believers. And, and he... he t- Sorry, I'm getting a little lost here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just my notes were a little juxtaposed differently from the way I'm speaking. So, all right. Well, the, 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 the bullet points of, of Acts chapter 1, basically, is they come down from the Mount of Olives, and they go up, and then they, they pray together. And then they talk about another event. And this is where the 120 comes from. It says that Peter stood up in those days, and they started talking about Judas. Okay, he's gone. What are we going to do? We have to pick someone else. And they ended up picking Matthias. They chose between him and one other person. Nowhere else does it say 120 beyond it. It says about 120 people. Now, you have to ask the question, well, why did they only report the numbers in two places like this? 500 in the case of 1 Corinthians 15 and about 120. Well, in both cases, if you think of Hebrew law, there's a thing that says that Anything that can be proclaimed as truth has to come from at least two witnesses. And the more witnesses there are, the more valid it is. So when Paul is saying Jesus rose from the dead, on one occasion there were over 500 people that saw him at the same time. And in this case, they're talking about the decision to replace Judas, that there were about 120 people there in agreement. That validated the decision to have Matthias come in as the, uh, as the next disciple as the next apostle. But because people read things in narrative form, the story just naturally morphs into the fact that they went to the upper room, they prayed there, they decided to replace uh, Judas with Matthias, and and on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came down, and there were 120 people in this upper room. So you have... The bullet points from, uh, from, the, from the two chapters, it goes like this. Event number one, the ascension. It doesn't say how many people. 
Event number two, the apostles return from the Mount of Olives and go to the room they were staying, the apartment upstairs, the rooms, the sleeping quarters, not the furnished gathering space. Event number three, then it says they join together constantly in prayer, but it doesn't say where. It just says they gathered together in prayer. It doesn't even stay where they were. It doesn't say that it was where they were staying, but it could have been. Event number four, Peter addresses about 120 believers so they can replace uh, Judas. They pick Matthias. And I guess you can think of this as the first church staff meeting ever held. They were conducting business. You know, they wanted to, they, they, had, they had something they had to take care of. It was, it was a business meeting. So the natural tendency then was to read this in a, in a singular thing. And we end up with, oh, there were 500 people at Ascension. 120 people at the day of Pentecost. It must have been 380 people that didn't pay heed to the, to the notion. When those other two numbers don't even matter, where did we come up with 300? But how many people believe that? So we've got to ask the question. I'm going to skip this last one because I don't have enough time for it. And it's actually a sermon in by itself. So we ask the question. Why does this all matter? Are you just being into semantics and, and too picky-oon? Well, I could do something like, like a lot of religious people have done over the years and lay a guilt trip on you, go something like this. Jesus died on a cross for all of you. You need to get it right. But if you do that, you miss the spirit of what we were talking about in Solomon, the Song of Solomon, right? God's heart that really loves you. He's not going to condemn you for not getting it right. But we need to get it right. Okay, Jesus is coming back. And we need to get it right. So here's some things to consider. If we don't get it right, we hear things like this. That's not what my church believes. But we need to say in response to that, what does the word of God say? Or more accurately, what does it actually say? Here's another one. Oh, I learned that in a seminar. To which we would say, but what does the word of God say? My pastor taught that in a sermon. To which we would say, but what does the word of God say? I guarantee you our pastor wants you to check Oh, the book I'm reading talks about that. But what does the Word of God say? This is my favorite one. It all depends on what it means to you. But what does the Word of God say? There's one last point. Consider this. The parable of the ten virgins in the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were not. They were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Five were prepared and five were not. What does it really mean to be prepared? Are we going to let somebody else do our thinking for us? Or are we going to look for ourselves? 
picture yourself, okay, we're going to go meet the bridegroom, go get your lamp. You go to the back room, you grab your lamp, and you run out. Did you look inside? Did you check for yourself that there was oil in it? Or did you just, somebody told you that there was oil in it? But you didn't check for yourself. And when you get out there, you realize, I'm not ready. we got to be ready. Before you can get ready, you first have to know him. And maybe somebody here doesn't. I got saved on a Saturday morning in 1984. Devil can't lie to me and say it didn't happen. Because there was a moment I remember. Is there anybody here? You can't point to a moment and say, that was the moment. That was the moment that I accepted Jesus. And then you walk forward never being lied to again. If you don't have that moment, you can have it now. So everybody bow your heads. There's a good chance that we're all believers here today. There's also a chance there's somebody here who has never made that decision. Never said, today is the day I start my walk with Jesus. And from there on in, I'm going to get it right. And I'm going to be prepared. If that's you, raise your hand. Okay. So we are all believers. Everybody want to be ready? All right, let me pray and then we'll go home. It's a little early. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to share something that hopefully was from your heart. Because it filled mine for now for six or eight months. We need to be ready. And we need to check for ourselves. And we need to verify for ourselves. Because our relationship is our relationship. And we can't push it off on somebody else. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good one.